Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Origins podcast. Uh, sorry for a little delay in between this one and, and the previous one. Um, as always, thanks for your support and thanks for listening. Today we have got another guest on the podcast. We have got Mr. Joe Jeffrey on. Uh, a lot of you will probably know who he is already if you follow me and Rob, but for those who don't, Joe, take it away, give a little introduction to yourself. Well, firstly, appreciate you guys having me. I basically forced you to get me on, I think, on that last <laughs> and I was taking the piss that the the invitation got stuck in the junk mail or something. Um, I think it did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone that doesn't know me, um, online physique coach, um, write some articles and stuff. Basically, I'm just a bit of a meathead that likes lifting weights, not a great bodybuilder, um, into chemistry and some other nerdy stuff um and yeah that's pretty much it and and you say you say you're a bit of a meat and how long have you been training for then i've been haven't actually been lifting weights for that long um so i started lifting well i started sort of going to the gym and lifting weights when i was 17 um i'm 20 am i 26 or 27 i think i was born in 94 that makes me 26 i'm 26 now um i can't believe i had to go through that process to remember that um so i've been kind of lifting i didn't get seriously lifting weights until i met my wife because that's what she did um i was just more so into martial arts before then right um so i've been lifting weights since i was maybe 20 um that was around around the time that i met jasmine and because she's always been into it. She was into competing then as well. So yeah. not that long. And I, I obviously wasn't a coach then either, but I was very much into chemistry and biochemistry. And I kind of managed to intertwine those worlds over those years somehow. Yeah, because obviously in the, you're one of the most knowledgeable people in the industry in terms of like the pharmacology and the, and the chemistry behind bodybuilding. Um, so is that something you did at education before? before coaching did you go to university and do anything or is it just something you've always just been interested in i actually didn't do that well at school um and i often kind of make this point that i'm i have a proclivity to learn quite well and just sort of have a quite an academic um drive i I did very well at school but i didn't really learn anything in the sense that i could pass the test really well i can rote learn really easily I can read a page of text and I can remember it forever. Lucky in that sense. Um, I thought I was kind of playing the system at school. And then some years later, I kind of realized that I was just playing myself because I'd ended up an, almost like an intelligent idiot. I didn't yeah. really know anything. Um, so I left school to actually play the guitar professionally, believe it or not. Um, so I was, a, I was a, a touring session musician for a long time. I was doing that when I met my wife. I got into coaching as a way to get out of that, to stop, because we were in a long-distance relationship and I was travelling for work. Um, like I a actually, David Brent life on the road kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got into chemistry because it was something to pass the time that I just had an interest in when I was gigging. Lots of podcasting and just sort of reading literature on PubMed as so I just found the whole thing quite fascinating I'm quite obsessed with like truths and evidence and things like this a very weird thing to be interested in but I'm, I just had a real sort of um almost like a a magnitude like draw to 
to biochemistry and, and having an understanding of human physiology and pharmacology in general. So, and then when I got into bodybuilding and I realized that a lot of bodybuilding is just people making themselves their own chemistry experiments, I found it fascinating. And then that led me to where I am now. I've, I've gained a lot of education over the, over the time that I've been in bodybuilding, mainly because I've always had mentors and I've invested a lot into mentorships and learning that way from people like Dr. Scott Stevenson or, or Lyle McDonald, just to name probably my two biggest mentors over the years. Um, both very intelligent guys in their own rights, but in terms of like formal education, I haven't got any. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that's, that's probably similar to me in terms of, I, I think I've finessed the education system quite well. I've always done well, but I, I struggle to engage with learning about things that I'm not interested in. If I'm interested in it, I'll devote 100%. But if not, it, it, it struggles to capture my attention for long, if that makes sense. But obviously, I, I, I just finished my degree program in, in, in sport and exercise science. And I'm, I'm starting a master's in September in nutrition. And um, Rob, you're, what, you're moving into third year now with sport and exercise third science as well. Exact same but, course that you did, yeah. But I mean, how much of it really interests you and is and is applicable to like bodybuilding very little very little it's like yeah. you, you you learn more on, on on members forums and education sites like than you do our course to be honest that's why i'm excited to specialize into nutrition now and, and, and do something that i'm that, that i'm actually interested in if that if that makes sense well yeah but things I'm, like your site joe and 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 people like the muscle mentors and stuff like that like that's where the real education is coming from uh, in this industry and, and for me and Tim as well it's like the, the degree isn't really helpful in any way but the information you guys are putting out is what's like setting the standard for everyone to learn from yeah 100% 100% so Joe what, what, what's going on with your training at the moment because from what I believe you've been probably putting most of your energy into clients as opposed to yourself yeah, well, that's probably always the best case because I don't have a great um, genetic profile for this sport at all. So I don't take my own bodybuilder. I say I don't take it seriously. I do all of the same things that any client of mine would do. And I do think it's it's quite important that a coach does walk the walk in a sense of I, would, I wouldn't ask a client to do something that I haven't or couldn't do. Um, so I, I, actually, I had quite a bit of a sort of time off during quarantine so to speak because we didn't have gym access for a lot of it luckily for for the majority we did i ended up hiring a gym for me and my wife to use privately um which was great but the client load i i just made that mistake and i've made it maybe two or three times in the past of where i've let my client load get like ahead of my actual availability of of time um and then you know, we're all guilty of this i was talking to callum about this literally yesterday it was like where you get a little bit greedy where someone comes to you and they say, Oh, you know, you got any spaces, you know, you haven't got any spaces, but you think, Oh, I'd love to work with this person. And then, you know, before you know it, you're 20 over quota. And now you've somehow got to fit another day in the already seven days that filled and, you know, ended up with no time. So I made that kind of mistake. I've managed to reel it back in a little bit. Now I've got a little bit of reeling back into doing that uh, to do yet. And I have got back into training. I've ran pretty much like one whole mesocycle and I'm starting another one now. And I would like to kind of, get back to where I was size wise yeah. maybe 
So um, is, that, is that what you're looking You're going into, you've been in the gaining phase for, for a full mesocycle now and, and, and you, you're continuing with that. Yeah, so I ran a pretty quick primer phase because relatively detrained and I hadn't really been eating properly. I'd gained quite a bit of body fat. My, my glucose tolerance was pretty poor. So I just did like a 21-day primer, really. Got the blood glucose where I wanted it to be. Got my condition back into a respectable state. Ended up at about 200 pounds. It was very light for me. Um, I'm about two... I was 216 this morning. I think my heaviest this block i was 220 just before i deloaded last week so that's I'm, I'm pretty happy with that for like six weeks with no change to any other biometric so i'd just like to keep pushes i mean most of my focus really goes to honestly most of my household focuses in, in my wife doing well because she's a successful competitor so it's mostly yeah. just getting to the gym with me and whatever she needs to do on as long as i'm there to help her do that and then i'll train a bit myself you know yeah and with with the primer phase, was that that was a protein spur modified fats, wasn't it? Yeah, some uh, somewhat similar, maybe closer to the kind of RFL model that Lyle McDonald would follow. But essentially, what I'm trying to do there is create the the largest net energy deficit I possibly can with energy intake alone, um, which practically leaves me with, as you say, a protein spur modifying fast layout. But there was somewhat maybe higher fat because I. I like to contain a sort of variability of protein sources. So I was still having like a red meat meal and things like this. So the trace fats probably added up to more than your traditional protein spray modifying fast did. I mean, the protein definitely did add up to more than what a traditional protein spray modifying fast would. And and I'd maybe put it more so a low carb model because I did have maybe a, a kilo to a kilo and a half of, of veggies in there as well. Um, and essentially running that alongside what would be the, the minimum dose of pharmacology needed to maintain skeletal muscle tissue on that degree of a deficit. And I pulled off about, I think I dropped 32 pounds or something, 21 days. Jeez. And that was that, that was using um, fat burners as well? Yeah. So yeah. you ran clenbuterol, what, what else? I used, so that block uh, anabolics-wise was... 300 milligrams per week of testosterone um i started on 100 milligrams of trembolone and masteron and then that moved to 200 milligrams of trembolone and masteron uh i used 200 milligrams of injectable l-carnitine um 1.5 units of growth hormone 40 micrograms of clenbuterol 15 milligrams of yohimbine um i think that was yeah i think that was it because so what a topic we want to delve into was this because purely because we we me and Rob together ran um, Rob through a pretty similar phase. It, it, we we called it obviously a protein spray modified, but it was very similar to in terms of trace fats and carbs. They were relatively high due to like you had red you had red meat meals and you had like a kilo mm -hmm. of day, didn't you, Rob? Yeah, yeah, that was the setup. But obviously, being natural, the only thing you used was your himbe. I didn't actually use it. Yet. Did you oh, I didn't think no. And how, what did you manage to pull off? Uh, ten pounds. It, but we did, so we set it up a bit different to you, Joe. We did it like so. We did five days of the protein sparing fasting, and then two days refeeding, and then just repeated that one more time. Yeah. Um, all that I quite like. I, I like that model suitable more so for if you're a natural athlete. That that would be like what you'd see. The category one RFL model that Lyle McDonald has, has put out, that's a 5-2 rotation like that. That's definitely 
worth bearing in mind if you're at greater risk of muscle protein breakdown or proteolysis in general as a natural athlete you don't get that benefit of essentially bypassing that pathway with yeah. less anabolics you know yeah so if a natural was to to run if someone listening to this podcast wanted to run it what would how would you set it up differently for a natural athlete than an enhanced athlete because as we said we we did five days on two days when we refilled again and then we pulled back down with five days and we, we, we only did it for what 14 days yeah, so that's a relatively acute degree of exposure for the kind of magnitude of fat loss that you're looking at. So the risk to reward there is fairly on reward side. Yeah. There's a few like contingencies here, I think, when you're looking at things like this global an- anabolism to catabolism and not only muscle protein and like synthesis to degradation rates. In a natural, you're always kind of wondering, am I pushing that degradation side maybe harder than I'm pushing um, – the muscle protein synthesis side, maybe you could do that with too much stimulus from training. You pass that sort of inverted U curve of dose response or your energy deficit is so large that you're trying to drive too much of an energy deficit that some degree of proteolysis is occurring. That risk is going to exponentially increase the lower your body fat goes as well. So there's a kind of few uh, contingencies that you need to put in scope first but you're at a pretty low risk of that acute exposure you know five days i don't really think a ton of proteolysis is going to occur and i i do think actually it's a bit overblown the the amount of muscle you can realistically lose but you just don't have that same protection in terms of you know because various anabolics i mean what's testosterone doing when it it drives this um transcription of anabolism at um the androgen receptor it's going to push up muscle protein synthesis. And then if you've got something like Trembolone in there, it's got that cross-binding affinity to glucocorticoid receptors that's going to decrease muscle protein breakdown. So it's relatively anti-catabolic. You know, think about the effects of pushing up muscle protein synthesis and then reducing muscle protein breakdown. You're in a pretty good spot to be as kind of aggressive as you like, so to speak. Yeah. Um, as a natural, you, you've got to bear in mind that maybe you don't have enough of that muscle protein synthetic vector to balance the other side of the coin, but that's going to be highly biologically into individual as well, which is difficult. Yeah. In general, you'd probably just avoid it if you can. Yeah. 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 100%. And in terms of training, obviously we, we pull training down to just baseline volume completely. Is mm-hmm. that something that you'd agree with as well? Oh yeah. In a phase like that. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to run a trap, I think a trap most people would fall into is they they'd want to train. I, I think it's a, a trap that most individuals in the industry fall into is that they want to train more. They'd want to do more to try and protect the muscle as much as possible. When in the end, we're just we're just spiking muscle protein breakdown higher than NPS itself. Shush, sorry, my dog's barking. Um, yeah, well, this is a. I mean, it's fairly well elucidated in the in the literature that your volume requirements are going to decrease in terms of comparing maintaining your skeletal muscle as compared to growing new skeletal muscle, you, you could pull right down to a real minimum effective volume. And you probably do want to, you know, have space in there to decrease volume as you progress through a contest prep phase, potentially, because just driving up sympathetic stress for no returns on investment in a stage that you're not going to be gaining muscle tissue anyway, why would you be trying to drive the imposed demand of progressive overload when 
the adaptation of muscle growth can't happen anyway. You're only going to leave yourself at a greater risk of muscle protein breakdown and or even inhibition of free fatty acid mobilization if it's just increasing this sympathetic tone to decrease in volume with the goal of maintaining that mechanical load vector. So maybe what you know, whatever your highest, most intense set is that has the most like per set volume load, the greatest weight move through space, whatever set that is, you just want to kind of try to maintain that as a natural athlete. As an enhanced athlete, again, this this is kind of neither here nor there because you're kind of attenuating a lot of this. If you've seen any of those sort of obviously with like gyms reopening, I've done quite a lot of these primers for people. Um yeah. I've put on Instagram. I'll say 90% of them didn't train at all. Yeah, I saw that. I can't remember the name of, of the client. Um, he's got he's got a really thick torso. He's got a really thick set of abs. I can't... Matt, he, maybe? Matt Strong? I think it could be Matt. Yeah, his head's never in the photo. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, Matt Strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, he never trained, did he? I think. Is that right? No, I, I think he, did. he was doing like two days a week at the beginning and then we just dropped it, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and and obviously, how long did he run it for? Uh, I think we did like 14 days, and then we had a a bit of a reload period just to see where he was. I think we did five days off, um, and then I think we did – no, we did one week and then a little reload, and then we did two weeks and then straight into his growth phase. But I think um, for, for, for the listeners, I think a lot of people that would just blow their minds that in a in such an aggressive deficit like that, you train twice a week and then didn't train at all. Yeah. Like, do, do you know, I'm quite, I, I think people need to realise that train get, getting the minimum effective volume during a diet is, 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 is the best thing that you can possibly do in terms of recovery capabilities, driving sympathetic drive. Yeah, especially if you're going to be that aggressive. You know, if you're going to run a model that's just creating the biggest net deficit possible, you're not going to be bothered to train anyway. It's, and if you do train, it's going to be shit. Can yeah. I swear on this podcast? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah you can swear. <laughs> um, it's not going to be great anyway. Like, I, I didn't train when I did when I did this primer um, because we only had I, – I basically ran it because it was like – in. A client, a client of mine near me owns a gym and he said, hey, you know, in a couple of weeks you can come use my gym if you want to sort of rent it out. So I was like, right, I've got two weeks to actually be in a good spot to to go, you to know. Train, so, yeah, yeah. So That's I the same reason we did it as well because the gyms were supposed to open on the 4th of July. Mm. We ran it and then turned out not to happen. <sighs> I, I felt very similar in terms of training that there was – basically zero motivation and my energy levels were very low um and after especially after training like once i had some caffeine in me and i felt okay to get the session over and done with afterwards i was i felt like i'd just done like a three-hour leg session when it just been a couple of sets on push for example yeah well i don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that you should like disregard training but i do think i do think being techie about your training and having real specific progression schemes and, and and mesocycle designs and very specific periodization schemes these are like absolute fundamental requirements for a gaining phase they're things that have to happen like you have to do more over time but when you're dieting you really only have to do as much as needed to maintain your muscle mass so you know if you are knackered 
then just sticking to that minimum and just making it very effective. You know, pick the best resistance profile that you have access to. Make sure your execution is absolutely perfect and you drive to a sufficient intensity to activate all of your high threshold motor units and then go home and chill out, you know, or go and do some steps. That's going to burn way more calories than any resistance training is. Yeah. 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 It was a, it was a massive, because I, I, I competed last year and during my prep, it was a massive learning curve for me. Like I coached myself and um, my volume needed to come down towards the end. And, I, and I, just, I just refused to bring it down and I would just batter myself in the gym. And in the end, the amount of muscle loss, especially in my legs that I lost in terms of the amount of cardio that I was doing steps and then ignoring a lot of recovery, like my, my recovery capabilities, it, it really, really, really destroyed my leg tissue massively. Mm. Mm. It was like, it was like the refusal to pull like intensifiers and sets and stuff like that. It was like, it was stupid when I look back, but obviously I'll, I'll, I won't make the mistake again. Yeah. And I think the people overestimate their minimum requirements as well, especially females. Um, you know, that I'm pretty sure I could probably find it. I'm, I'm sure I read a case study on some contest prep bodybuilders where this was, where this was studied, what the kind of minimum needed was. It could have been as low as like three sets per body part per week, you know, well, something just very, to retain some tissue. Yeah. That, I'm just going like, to say that I probably, I could be talking out my ass here because I'm trying to uh, case study that I may or may not have read, <laughs> but I can, I can, I can, you know, say for a fact that I've worked within those kind of volumes with natural trainees and, it's worked just fine. We've maintained all lean body mass, or rather, all muscle mass. Um, don't want to say lean body mass because glycogen, triglyceride, fluid, that's all lean body mass. But um, the, the general sort of thing to remember here is your requirements are going to be far lower, but you just have to make it quite effective. You know, you, the, the goal is really just maintain that mechanical load vector, you know, that intense set that top set, whatever it is, you know, hit that, stick to those strength goals and then you're probably going to be all right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Rob, do you want to take away with the next one? Yeah. Well, firstly, thanks to uh, Kane Edgar for the question on that. I know we didn't say at the beginning, but he did ask. Big Kane. Kane's a legend. (laughs) (laughs) I love Kane. Kane is the nicest bloke you'll ever meet in your life. He sends me a voice note like, hey, man, just just, just want to say, uh, hope you, Jasmine and Hunter, are all well. I'm like, that's what to say. <laughs> oh, that's class. Absolutely love. Absolutely big love for Kane. Yeah, so the, the, the kind of next topic we wanted to speak about is, so we, on this podcast, we've never really spoken much about the drug side of bodybuilding. And like, Joe, you're probably the best person to have on for this topic. Um, and we kind of just wanted to cover like the bait, the, the very basics of like the mechanisms behind like how androgens work within the body and, and the, uh, the mechanism behind the androgen receptor and like what actually occurs when people use anabolic steroids. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, that's a hard. I'm trying to think of the it's way. Very, it's very broad. Apologies for that. The, but the, the basic mechanisms of action. Let me let me think of a way to break this down. Um, I think that I mean there's multiple mechanisms of action within the pharmacology of, of anabolic steroids. Let, 
I'm going to really bastardize three of them to massively oversimplify it, um, yeah. essentially. Um, so we could say the first mechanism of action that we'd be interested in would be what happens at the androgen receptor itself. Um, so let's forget what would happen on the HPG axis. And we talk about if we we inject a depot of, of steroids, they're cleaved from this depot. You now have this androgen in the blood. What happens there? The first one would be the intracellular metabolism of that androgen at the androgen receptor itself. So it would bind at an androgen receptor somewhere. You have more, you have some molecules that are more tissue selective than others that may control where they bind or their binding affinity, as in how tightly to the receptor they bind. And then they're going to transcribe effects. They're going to increase this mRNA expression of androgen effects or androgenicity or anabolic effects, um, sending these signals downstream to turn on pathways, essentially, um, like mTOR or, and, and therefore muscle protein synthesis. If we're talking anabolism, that would be one effect. And that's, that kind of leads you down the road of why we're having these developments of non-steroidal SAMs because maybe we don't want androgens to bind in certain places. We do want them to bind other places. How anabolic is this molecule? How androgenic is this molecule? Um, so that's what you call the, the myotrophic androgenic index or the, the anabolic androgenic index. Um, this is elucidated under the Hirschberger assay. Um, it's pretty crap assay. I'm not ma a massive fan of it. Um, it's basically where they... Um, they use the ventral part of the prostate of a of a a rat that's had its gonads removed and they compare that it's like a, a smooth muscle called the levator ani they compare the growth of that as compared to to this ventral part of the prostate of of these rats and they measure the growth of the bow of, of both of those areas when exposed to a molecule and they would determine how anabolic or androgenic that molecule is based on the ratio um, of growth of those two. There's an index ratio they use, which is like the the levator ani weight um, minus a, the control weight um, divided by the prostate weight that's been exposed to the molecule minus the control prostate weight, which will equal the increase in weight of the levator ani minus the increase in the ventral prostate weight, something like that. But anyway, long story short, I think this model kind of sucks dick, like because <laughs> first rat, like rodent models actually seldom translate to humans very well, especially when it comes to hormones. Many cases yeah. like in estrogen that they almost do the exact opposite in rodents. So I don't think we can look at this and say like, yes, they definitely, this definitely works. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen someone say like, yeah, I use this drug because, you know, it's got an anabolic ratio of, of 500 to, to 500. So it's like five times more anabolic than testosterone. It's like, you know, it's nonsense. It's, it doesn't, yeah. I mean, that would be like, yeah, I'll take Tremblone again, five times more muscle than I take testosterone. We know that that doesn't happen, you know, that yeah. doesn't happen in any of the cattle studies that are done using Tremblone. Anyway, so I wouldn't base anything on this in terms of drug choice. And in fact, there's like great variability even within the Hirschberger assay. I remember like within that, that assay, Primo had a variability of like 
one-to-one anabolic to androgenic that would be the same as testosterone. But then there was some on Primo that were coming about like one to 30. That's a 30-fold difference. So you can't really realistically get anything from there. We really need to look at human data when it comes to drug choice. Anyway, yeah. I, in fact, I've got... Um, I don't know why I've only just thought of this. I've got a series of articles on my website that's called like Steroids Made Simple. And we kind of yeah. go through the mechanisms of action in there. But firstly, it's like what happens at the androgen receptor when it when a molecule binds there and then what, what it does. Second one would be what happens in terms of anti-catabolic activity. So these binding at a glucocorticoid receptor and what like certain anabolic molecules or rather androgens combined can bind at a glucocorticoid receptor and one of them being trembolone it's got a high affinity all anabolics have like an affinity for the glucocorticoid receptor but very very low trembolone has a high binding affinity so these anti-glucocorticoid effects and then the third mechanism to kind of pay attention to is the behavioral mechanism so what androgens do in men and women when it concerns sexual behavior aggression um neural function and mood and and how these molecules interact with the central nervous system i'd say they're the three main things to touch on that was a bit of like a tirade but one like what happens at the androgen receptor two what happens in at the glucocorticoid receptor or rather what is an anti-glucocorticoid effect and three what happens at like within the central nervous system they're the three things to kind of hone in on if you talk about what mechanisms do anabolic androgenic steroids work under that are interesting to us as bodybuilders. Yeah. What What would you say, what, what have you seen that's had the, the effect on the nervous system? Because that, that's something I'm quite interested in from what you've just said. Um, I mean, there's quite a lot of literature on, on this that's quite useful. Androgens... I mean, the real, like, obvious example is human sexual behavior and how testosterone and a lot of data on testosterone plays a huge role in in sexual function and sexual desire and arousal. Um, anyone, you know, take enough testosterone, give anyone enough testosterone, they're going to have a super high libido, you know. Um, it's hard to say which specifically drive a greater um, effect within the CNS specifically, but if we're talking about like aggression, in because we could be, in terms of behavioral mechanisms, we could also be talking about like neurological pathways or things like nandrolone and its interaction with the dopaminogenic pathway. But I mean, a pretty obvious example is anything with a, a very high degree of androgenicity driving like hypermania or aggression yeah. anything i mean look at the powerlifting world some of the compounds that they use like non-esterified androgens like halo or superdrol or like trembolone that's not attached to an ester you know in its base form any of these massive swings upwards in blood androgen levels are going to drive a great degree of aggression are these effects that are permanent in terms of actual permanent changes to like brain chemistry or even like the actual brain itself um we've got very like very early data on this it, in terms of what we were talking about the androgens and what they do like 
behaviorally on like aggression and stuff like this that that is transient in nature you know you get this upswing of, of blood androgens doing what they're doing um there there is some stuff on nandrolone um and neurological function but again we're faced with these problems in like potentially decreases in beta amyloid and things like this that that could be permanent i'm trying to think of the name of the study i just googled it um in fact there is there is um again rat studies where we look at um the effects of steroids on brain injury and there's evidence that um the impact of dianabol on like the adolescent brain of a rodent and and neurotoxicity and i i do think that neurotoxicity is related to the mechanism of action of specific performance enhancing drugs um it has been proposed that the activation of androgen receptors may elicit opposite effects on cell survival depending on whether membrane androgen receptors or intracellular androgen receptors are being activated um it's interesting because dianabol seems to be have a low binding affinity of androgen receptors and so most of the muscle growth that we're going to see come from it is most likely from like off target or non-androgen receptor mediated effects and the increased neurotoxicity of dianabol when you compare it to an androgen like testosterone is fully prevented when using a, a glucocorticoid receptor agonist which suggests that a, a drug like dianabol's action on the on the gr is is what's causing this impact um there's also some other drugs that have been shown to offset neurotoxicity from other drugs like like nandrolone um actually introducing testosterone seems to offset the impact of neurotoxicity from nandrolone as well so potentially estrogen is neuroprotective i think the only thing that we know now is like steroids have the potential to be neurotoxic yeah. and different anabolics have the potential to be more or less neurotoxic because there are there's data where moderate testosterone use is neuroprotective so both testosterone and estrogen is neuroprotective um but i think I think this is one that we're about to have a rude awakening with many, you know, people are worried about gyno, people are worried about hair loss, people are worried about acne, people are worried about their oily skin. We should probably be more worried about our brain. Yeah. Um, that, and I think this is one that as more data comes out and hopefully we start seeing some human data on this, we're, we're, we're probably going to be quite worried. Yeah. Have you noticed more human trials occurring? Is there more and more data being being found in humans as opposed to like rodents and stuff? Because I imagine it's quite hard to get to get thirty human trialists to to, to run some drugs and do trials on them. Yeah, for these for these drugs to escalate to the point of being used in humans is, you know, it takes. It takes a lot of data. If if you've ever watched my presentation that I did on non-steroidal sounds, you kind of see this in action. You have to remember that no one, there's no research going on for which, how can we create this compound that 
is going to be hugely anabolic in skeletal muscle and and not androgenic anywhere and not anabolic anywhere else and you know how can we create the biggest bodybuilder on the planet is is more so how can we um inhibit off target side effects for therapeutic deployment of specific disease cases um so um non non non-steroidal sounds a good place to look for this because i mean most of them fail at the rat trials um in the sense that as you escalate the dose in their specific case you uh, the tissue selectivity of that compound is lost so it never gets to humans but one did osterine one milligram and it it did well and it it passed all the safety testing within there trialed a three milligram it did well and then it was escalated again i think to maybe five milligram and it failed um and this is the case with with a lot of these new compounds is we're not really seeing them get to the point where they're offering anything novel that the the compounds that are already currently approved for human clinical use that are steroidal in nature or steroidal SARMs. I think we do need to note a difference between steroidal and non-steroidal SARMs. Like Trenbolone is a steroidal SARM. Yeah, do you want um, to quickly quickly go into the difference then for, for the listeners? So when we talk about SARMs, we mean selective androgen receptor modulator. So the, the key word being... Um, selective what's an easy way i'm trying to think of a basic way to explain this so if we have an androgen in the blood and we and we have a good way to explain it is probably looking at serms because everyone knows what they do so a selective estrogen receptor modulator you take a drug like tamoxifen it's going to have a selective nature to bind at the nipple gland if we have a selective androgen receptor modulator we have an androgen in the blood that we want to bind somewhere so let's say we created this one for bodybuilding like i was talking about um that we would say right we only want this androgen binding at um androgen receptors within skeletal muscle tissue right so they have the same effects of uh, of any other um anabolic androgenic cell but only in a very specific place and we would also want them to be divorced in terms of androgenicity to anabolic effects so if you look at a drug like primabolin that's has a greater divorce from androgenicity to anabolism as compared to testosterone right so it has milligram for milligram is is less um androgenic than testosterone and maybe as anabolic or maybe a little bit less anabolic than testosterone but it's the divorce that's important we're trying to get away from androgenicity and trying to get towards anabolism here because much of the off-target side effects that you would realize with the use of prima bolin let's say in like a clinical setting with females females are androgen sensitive we can't just plow androgens into females and not realize off-target side effects like facial hair growth acne clitoral growth things like this yeah um so that would be what we would kind of describe as a psalm um the the non-steroidal psalms are really like um what are some examples that people would know osterine and uh, what's that other one called anderine lgd rad um and these are where you get like um 
something that would bind to the androgen receptor with with high affinity and and demonstrate tissue selectivity but not exhibit any off-target side effects essentially yeah Uh, yeah hopefully that makes sense like if you put them in in the hirschberger assay that we were talking about maybe the the prostate weight wouldn't change but the the levator anion would grow preferentially you know and we would say if they were weak agonists in the prostate but had a great binding affinity within that levator anion, we, we would say, right, this is clearly selective because it, it bound there, you know? Yeah. Um, there's something like a, a study that comes to mind, S4. Have you heard of that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember there's, there's a study, three milligram per kilogram per day, where S4 partially restores the prostate weight um, to like just below 20%. Um, of where it was, but it fully restores the weight of this levator anion. Um, so you would think it, it would preferentially drive growth of, of skeletal muscle tissue, maybe not have these these off-target side effects. And you can also look at what this does in like bone. Bone is quite interesting. Like, can you increase bone mineral density, bone strength, um, and uh, w- without driving off-target side effects? Again, that's where this is often studied within rat models of osteoporosis. Hopefully, right. with 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 the uh, like hope to be able to treat people that are androgen sensitive, or are non-steroidal in nature, so they don't suppress um, HPG axis function. So a goal with these non-steroidal times would be to achieve these effects without suppression of of luteinizing hormone or follicle stimulating hormone, so you don't lose your own HPG axis function. That would be, you know, a big plus for these non-steroidal SARMs in the fact that they're not going to disrupt your endogenous hormone production, but be able to get into the site of action, bind there and, and transcribe these effects, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That explains well. Um, what, can, what, what was we saying before I said explain it? I don't know, How but explain on, on the tangent. I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Rob, do you have any idea? Before I said, just explain the difference. No, <laughs> sorry. Oh, we can move on to a different question if you want. Well, this is yeah. where we were saying that that trembolone is a set, is a sound because it has a divorce. When you look at um, some trembolone studies in rats, for example, and they do exactly that, they compare like the weight of the prostate to the levator anion. That the levator anion sees greater growth, and this is why you know. In some cases, I wouldn't be so crazy to say trembolone could be safer than testosterone if you are running, let's say, a dose escalation of the testosterone that would realize off-target side effects, whereas if you use trembolone at a dose... Let's not forget that trembolone was historically approved for human clinical use in women right? because, because of this divorce. Trembolone, much like what we see with Osterine now, as you escalate the dose, its tissue selectivity is lost. So you have to pay mind to that. Like if you look at a bodybuilder using 500 milligrams of trembolone and, and seeing side effects, that's really not the same as somebody using like one milligram per kilogram every 10 days. You know, let's say for me, that would be like 70 milligrams a week. That, that, that dose is almost unheard of in bodybuilding, but that would be like the clinical effective dose of this drug to, to sustain tissue selectivity and act as an effective SARM. To achieve some of these effects that include that 
that anti-glucocorticoid receptor binding. So that would be effective if I wanted to to reduce my muscle protein breakdown rates. I could I could look at the clinical data and create a predictability of outcomes from there that that's a clinically effective dose because it's been replicated in in trials. You know, there's trial data that shows that that happens, and I'll get a huge benefit from that. And that maybe that's what bodybuilders need to do is actually look at sort of what the dosages used in these trials are and what we actually saw and is that more than they need you know do they only really need to attenuate that muscle protein breakdown to that degree you know do you really need 100 milligrams of trembolone or do you need just enough to to achieve that end result of um binding at the glucocorticoid receptor and then preventing cortisol from binding there and preventing that downstream mechanism of, of muscle protein breakdown we get into what you'd call like a safer use model of drugs there essentially yeah yeah that no that makes that makes complete sense i mean i think i think we could both listen to you all day speak about drugs to be fair i mean i've just sat here in all for for half an hour um, yeah. but i think we've got one more one more question to cover haven't we rob yeah so this question is from jz bodybuilding um and he said impact and role of vitamin C in general health and bodybuilding? Impact of vitamin C? Well, I, th I actually think on, on the note of anabolic users here, um, a huge negative feedback inhibitor of hypertrophy from anabolic steroids that is going to increase on a dose dependent scale is oxidative stress so we will any enhanced athlete definitely has escalated um requirements of antioxidants so when we look at the the sort of rda of a civilian any athlete is going to likely be above that but if you're a bodybuilder that's under elevated or rather periods of elevated oxidative stress you should probably be very much on top of your antioxidant supplementation and of course vitamin c is one of these that we've seen researched i mean off the top of my head you see doses used up to two grams per day um or oh, no there is one study where is it two grams five times a day to reduce symptoms of a cold i'm sure i saw that anyway i think the rda is somewhere around 200 milligrams i might be completely off for that um i think the most obvious thing that vitamin c does is if you are deficient in vitamin c it is going to raise your plasma vitamin c you know so right. orally supplemented vitamin c is going to drive up your blood plasma vitamin c if you have an issue there which you shouldn't because you should very easily be hitting the, the rda dietarily um unless you eat like shit which you know a lot of bodybuilders do you, I think fact, a, lot, a lot of people neglect the, the micronutrition side of bodybuilding. Yeah, so, I mean, as a coach, I'm quite anal with with vitamin and mineral intake. I do, when I'm running nutrition programming, it is, I use chronometer, um, which is, it's like my fitness pal on trend. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've used it before, actually. I love it, man. I've, I'm, I'm glad, because I've been using it for years and years, and I've, and I've got a few people on it now. Like I saw Josh Bridgman using it the other day. Um, I got Cal using it. Um, I found it from your story. Yeah, this is it. I've, I've created a bit of um, it's it's cool now because people know what it is. That's just happening with that heavy set app as well. I just got that yeah. like 
calculating volume load now every i keep seeing it screenshotted on instagram like that's pretty cool man um so there another thing vitamin c does seem to do is increase blood flow i think there's quite a few studies on that so driving up blood flow if you have an issue with nitric oxide function i imagine that's that's by um i do remember seeing some minor some data a while ago i think it was when i was back talking to rick foster about gdas and that vitamin c did reduce blood glucose i can't remember the this was a study in, in type 2 diabetics seeing an increase in, in fasted blood glucose but it, i mean my big question is what what degree of a, of a reduction in general oxidation or oxidative stress is it, is it going to come from? It's not one that would be kind of at the top of my tree because I don't think the data is that great on what kind of escalation of, of dose that an athlete would require here. I'd definitely be looking at other antioxidants that seem to have a bit of a larger um, net effect here. Um, I think pretty much the data stands there's a slight decrease or no significant uh, or no statistically significant change the majority of the time on, on, on markers of oxidative stress. So it's not, it's not really a supplement that I put a great deal of focus into, to be honest, because it's not one that I've ever been able to like see some really impressive data on. You mentioned other, the main antioxidants. What, 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 what main antioxidants would you look to be covering? And, and, and from and from what dietary sources for people listening that maybe don't have micro uh, nutrients covered? Right. Well, dietarily wise, if you want to do that before we get into supplementation, you can set yourself some sort of tentative general rules of your diet. Like if you're eating, let's say most bodybuilders are eating five meals a day, you want to have five different protein sources, really. Um, I would recommend that between vegetables and fruits that you hit 20 different sources. I don't think that's difficult. You know, I mean, if we take a breakfast, for example, and you have eggs, so that's one protein source, and then maybe you make uh, an omelette with spinach, onion, and mushroom. So you've done three vegetables there. And then you have maybe a bowl of cream of rice, and you put raspberries and blueberries in there. So you've nailed five in one meal, you know? that it's fairly easy to do people make a bit of a big deal about it it's not hard to throw three different veggies into one meal and then you want to kind of ensure that you're getting a minimum amount of these per day because and and i cringe sometimes when you see some coaches protocols where it's like you know 100 grams of veggies and inevitably any client's just going to be like i'll just have like 100 grams of peas at every meal you know there has to be the sufficient rotation of vegetables to hit all of your micronutrition goals. I mean, anyone should probably just hop on chronometer, put your diet in there, sans supplementation, and see what needs to be raised in terms of the vitamin and mineral goals. And don't forget electrolytes either. Your sodium, potassium, and magnesium goals specifically. I wrote an article on magnesium for this reason because I never see anyone talk about it, but cofactors, um, magnesium is an extremely important cofactor of insulin. Um, and we all want insulin working correctly. You know, we're all overfeeding on carbohydrates for the most part as bodybuilders. Um, so really just the greatest rotation of fruits and veggies that you can. And then if you need to escalate the vitamin and mineral goals, which you probably do. I mean, we, we have these escalated needs of things like magnesium. I think the RDA is something ridiculous. I can't remember. I wrote it in that article. But most elite athletes are needing somewhere between 800 to 1,000 milligrams a day, which is a lot. Um 
in terms of supplementation, if you're an enhanced athlete, there's a few that have brilliant um, data on. So in terms of just vitamins and minerals, vitamin D is a quite obvious one. A source of EPA and DHA like fish oil or krill oil. Magnesium in whatever dose needed to hit that 800 to 1,000 milligram systemic intake. Chromium I like, 200 micrograms daily. That's that's one that has excellent data on glucose tolerance improvements. Of course, you know, it is included in a lot of glucose disposal agents, but remember that this is a mineral that you can achieve dietarily. On the note of minerals, zinc and the effects of, that zinc has with, with and, and interactions with androgens. 50 milligrams of total zinc a day, I would say. You could throw some vitamin C in there. It's cheap. Another one that's been shown to re- reduce and even reverse arterial plaque f- formation is vitamin K2, specifically the MK7 form. What have I forgot? Vitamin E, 270 milligrams is the effective dose. We're essentially looking at anything that's shown in literature to have a large magnitude of effect of reducing markers of, of oxidative stress. Not only because it's healthy, but because you will drive greater degrees of hypertrophy because that is the main negative feedback regulator as dose of androgens increase. So the big hitters on antioxidants for me would be metformin would be the first one. I'm, I love metformin. Anyone that hasn't heard of metformin, I've got a presentation on my website where we go through the basic mechanisms of actions and, and what it does. Metformin to me is a drug that I would consider a, a basal use drug, a drug that you could use daily, year round, and not realize negative health consequences. Um, NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, has great literature on its antioxidant effects, 1.2 grams a day. Taurine is excellent. Ah, one one antioxidant that has real great literature behind it. In fact, probably the most potent antioxidant I've I've ever seen is is melatonin. And I was wondering that, that not long ago, you know, that there's a, a piece of data on women where where they're given three or five milligrams of melatonin, they actually see a reduction in fat mass and an increase in lean body mass. And now thinking about it, the mechanism probably is oxidative stress reduction. Yeah. Um, Dr. Scott Howell has actually posted some papers on riding melatonin all the way up to 20 milligrams a day, if, if tolerable. Um, so that that's pretty awesome. Um, and ubiquinol, 100 milligrams a day. Again, it's been shown to have excellent antioxidant properties. They'd be my they'd be my big hitter supplementation wise. That you probably can't. They would be the ones I would say have escalated needs within athletes that we are never going to hit dietarily. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that you that you need some form of external supplementation mm-hmm. to, to yeah. hit the needs. And notice that I didn't say multivitamin either. I think that the data <laughs> data on multivitamins again is like it's not great. So it's not something that I tend to include in clients' programmings. I'm more so trying to just hit those requirements dietarily and we can quite easily do that with a little bit of intelligent programming using chronometer. Um or if you absolutely have to use a multivitamin, I would make it food-based. But, you know, these highly concentrated forms like, like greens powders and stuff, we just don't have really good data on them. Similar things with electrolyte goals, like hitting your potassium goals. I'd much rather see somebody do that dietarily. And I think anyone can, again, rather than, you know, getting the low salt out and having to rely on potassium citrate. Whether there's a difference 
no, I don't believe that's been studied. It's very highly unlikely that there's a difference between potassium citrate and food-based potassiums. But when you're eating, you know, food forms that have all of the cofactors and the regulators in there already, you know, you, it's not really leaving anything to chance. I don't think it's difficult to realise your your electrolyte goals with, apart from magnesium. In terms of potassium, I don't think it's difficult to hit your potassium goals dietarily. You know. Yeah. I mean, probably a lot of these multivitamins and greens pals as well are massively underdosed too. Yeah, and ultimately it's just like taking one thing to attenuate your laziness somewhere else. Yeah. It's it's almost analogous to, you know, I could just take some more testosterone and, and take some more aromatase inhibitors rather than ask yourself, okay, how do I drive more transcription of anabolism that's going to lead to protein accretion without bringing me more off target side effects and how can i you know intelligently plan my stack design rather than i could just take more of this drug and then just use more yeah well thing is every inevitably you're going to have to up the dose it's where you up the dose from compound selection and using like a model that allows you to work under a safer sort of a safer model as possible that's where things get a little bit more intelligent but it, can, it of course it can be done um, and that's one thing that i really want to get rid of in the in the performance enhancing drug world is, is the over reliance on ancillary drugs um i think it's just born out of a misunderstanding of intelligence stack design yeah well we're approaching an hour so I think we'll wrap it up there. That went fast. But yeah, That's it, an it, it, rambling nonsense about, I think most of that was me talking shit about Psalms. If anyone actually wants some good information about Psalms, it wasn't that nonsense. I do actually have a presentation on my website. So it sounds like I keep plugging myself. So just uh, no, have but, a look. But 100%, anyone, anyone listening, do, do go check out Joe's website because it, it's, it, it's, it's full of knowledge bombs. It's, it's, full, it's a fantastic fantastic page if you've enjoyed listening to joe for an hour on this then you'll enjoy reading his articles and also check out the opd podcast and, and carbs cast too because they're, they're two different ends of the spectrums with yeah check out as well. I probably wouldn't bother going to carbs cast um, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast you won't enjoy carbs cast um if but you you will enjoy opd there's big nerd outs on there Definitely. Well, thanks, Joe, for coming on so much. I will 100% if you'd be up for it, come back in the future as well, because I'd love to to, to pick your brain some more for our listeners if, if, yeah, if, if you want to come back on. Yeah, man. Well, well, we can get back on and just like nail out one topic start to finish if you want. Yeah, yeah 100%. 100%. Well, thank you very much, mate. Thanks for coming on. And thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see you in the next one.